Well, let's take our Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one there on the pew for you. And uh, we're going through Matthew chapter 5 on Sunday mornings. If you've been with us, and we've gone through it verse by verse, word by word. And last week we talked about Jesus telling us that if we truly follow Him, we're going to expect persecution. In other words, that if you or I come to that place in our life, to where we commit to Jesus, to follow Him, to where His Word becomes our command, then we shouldn't expect for things to always go well with us. That's kind of a wake-up call, right? Because this is Jesus, and He's the Son of God, and He's there, and He's explaining to people what life is about. And He goes through the, the first few verses of Matthew, and you have these beautiful things such as, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Things like, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. All of these things that are awesome. But then He says, Oh, by the way, in verse number 11, Or verse number 10, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, get ready for the war. When you sign up to follow Jesus, you have, you have entered a war. He has made us alive and it's time to live for Him. Now, we're going to talk today about the verses 13 through 16 and Jesus kind of takes a little turn here after He explains that we're going to experience persecution, alright? In verse number 13, he says, You are the what? Help me out, church. You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste or its saltiness or its savor, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let me just make a note here before we totally dive into the text. Rocky Mount Baptist Church... Jesus lovers on November 20th at 5.30 in the evening. Get this. We're having inmates from the Franklin County Jail come to our fellowship hall and we're going to feed them and we're going to give them Jesus. Now some are like, can we do that? Some are already freaked out. Now, these are the guys who are trustees. These are the ones who have demonstrated, you know, that they're, they're, they're on the way to being rehabilitated. We're going to have police officers here as well. And I just want to say a public word of thank you to our sheriff and our lieutenants for having, having the vision to say, you know what? This may help those guys. Because some of these men, if they don't find Jesus in jail, they're going to get out of jail and they're going to come right back to jail. And then what's going to happen is their, their wives are going to have to raise their children all by themselves. Their sons and daughters will grow up with no dad. And the statistics for that are not good. Educationally, economically. So one thing that we emphasize, and I praise God, we've got a group that on most Saturdays, unless something comes up, goes to the jail and tries to give men Jesus. Because we're not a church that just wants to stand up 
and say, well, let me tell you how it is. See you next Sunday. No, we want to tell people how Jesus says that it is and connect with people throughout the week. We love Rocky Mount, Virginia. We love the people in Franklin County. So you as a member, as a part of Rocky Mount Baptist Church, y'all got a crazy church. Not getting into background checks, but we're gonna, we're gonna bring inmates here. Aquí, Espanol. We're gonna bring inmates here and we're gonna feed them and y'all are gonna love on them. You're gonna be able to show them the love of Jesus. You're gonna be able to look them in the eye. Some of you guys would be great to come look them in the eye, shake them in the hand to say, you know what? You don't, you can be a man and serve Jesus. And let me just go a step further. You have to be a true man in order to serve Jesus. Because a true man recognizes that he is limited. It's the guys that say, I'm invincible. I have no limits. I am the man. It's those guys you have to watch out for because if you follow them, you're going to end up in the train wreck that they've created. A true man recognizes, you know what, I do have my limitations. My manliness, one day, my strength, my skills, my money will come to an end. And the only thing that will matter then is what I've done with Jesus, the true man, the true man who has borne more sins, more more pressure, who has handled more, who has suffered more than all of us combined. And we, when we as men come to that place and say, Jesus, I'm dedicating my life to you, he'll make you into the man that you need to be. So when Jesus says that your good works, men will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Here's what we don't want. We don't want this, this outreach meal to these inmates to be something to say, well, Rocky Mount Baptist is crazy. All right? That's okay if they think that, but we don't just want it stopping there. We want to, to hopefully change the culture, the church culture in Franklin County and in Southwest Virginia. Now, we have some churches that are good examples, but let me just be honest. Can we be honest on a Sunday morning? What happens with a lot of our churches is we have kind of like this performance mentality. Right? Like we, we come and we gather on Sunday mornings and we meet and we hear sermons and we hear music that we say, I like that or I don't like that. And then we go home and there's not a connection to our community. May God change our hearts so that we look for people who can't do anything for us in return. I don't have to tell you this. On the stratopole of social upness, Chasing the Joneses, if you are a man in the U.S. today with a record, it is hard. It is hard to get back on your feet, even if Jesus has changed you. Even if you're wanting to do your best and begin to contribute back to the community that you've taken from. So I hope that even if you're not able to come on Wednesday, the 20th of November, and reach out to these men and show them the love of Jesus, please pray for us. Can we all do that? Because when you change a man's life, 90% of the time the family follows. When the man gets saved most all the time, the family follows after that. Just one night in November, if you're able to come and contribute, able to come and serve, we're going to have, Deborah, we got it all set up, right, Helene? We're going to serve food. It's going to, I mean, we're going to serve a lot of food. We're going to have, we're preparing basically for three times as what a normal person can eat because these guys can eat. And that's what they said. These guys are ready to eat and they can eat. And given if you eat Jail food and prison food, when you come to some down-home mama cooking, you are ready to E-A-T, right? You can change somebody's life. And here's the beautiful thing. That most of these men, if they find Jesus, they're going to go back home. They're going to get down on their knees before their wives. Or if there's someone that they're dating and say, honey, I'm sorry. Jesus has changed me. They're going to get down with their precious little children and say, I'm sorry, daddy's not been here. 
He's been doing time, but now he's out. I just want to let you know I love you. We're going to church on Sunday. I'm going to do my best to model Jesus for you. I've not been there times in the past, but this family will change because Jesus has changed me. You see, when something like that begins, it changes your entire church culture. May God have mercy on us when we leave church saying, I like this, I didn't like that. Whether it be music or whether it be dress or whatever it may be, Jesus here says that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And what did Jesus mean when he said you are the salt? And I brought some salt here for our visual learners. Y'all like that? I thought about getting a bunch of those, bunch of those little bitty salt packets and putting them all all the seat. But then, you know, we've got some wild people in here, and I know right after church, y'all have a salt fight and start assaulting each other. All right? So, but Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. Now, now what did Jesus mean when he said that? Well, if you're following along with us in your, in your worship guide, your outline there, we're going to look at the untapped potential of Christian influence in society. Because notice Jesus did not say, if you go to church enough, you will become the salt of the earth. He didn't say that, did he? He, he, he didn't say that if you really, really try hard to change your life, you may become the salt of the earth. He says you are the salt of the earth, speaking of Christ followers, and you are the light of the world. So what did Jesus mean? Well, some people look at this and they say, well, I I know what salt does in our society is it gives flavor to food. None of us like to eat food that is absolutely bland, right? I mean, you, you eat it and it's just like, where can I find the nearest trash can so I can give back this food where it needed to be all along in the trash can? Nobody likes to, nobody likes to eat food that has no, has no flavor. No pop to it. Some people think that this is what Jesus meant, that Christians were supposed to be kind of salty and and make life interesting. But we know today that if you eat too much salt, you'll have high blood pressure if you don't have a regular workout routine. And I do know some Christians that if you're around them enough, they will give you high blood pressure, right? You're just being honest, right? Some people just drive you crazy. So but what, what is Jesus talking about? Obviously, obviously, salt gives flavor. But in Jesus' day, he's talking to people who lived in the first century, and they use salt to preserve things. They used salt to preserve meat and so forth. So because they didn't have refrigerators and they didn't have preservatives that we have today uh, that will actually preserve the food but kill you, right? And that's a whole other health lesson another time. Jesus is getting to the point of saying that I have put you in the world to preserve the world, to, to stop the decay of society. Now, I think that all of us can agree this morning that society has some serious decay going on. Okay? Like anybody's like, man, we're doing great. You know, really? Right? The world has a serious case of decay. And the Bible says that that comes from sin. But Jesus says that you are the salt. In other words, you are the preservative. So the question for us is what should we expect when we come into contact with Christians? When I lived in Palm Bay, Florida, my dad pastored a church there, and we had quite a number of Jamaicans. And it, I'll tell you what, you have not been to church unless you have been to church with Jamaicans. They had people from all over the world. They had like all these flags for the people who were represented in that church from all around the world. I mean, it was awesome. You know, my dad would get up and preach, or someone would sing a song, and some of those Jamaican ladies would just say, Amen! Hallelujah! And like those white people almost died from a heart attack. Like, I mean, it was just like... 
boom, no microphone needed. They would just get fired up. And there's this one lady named Gwyneth. And she said, I had a friend and he came to visit us here in Palm Bay, Melbourne. First time to the beach. First time. And he ran out. You know, it's almost like you can hear the theme music playing. You ever seen somebody just run out to the beach, you know, in slow motion? He's just running. And he just runs into the water. And he gets a big mouthful of seawater. And he spits it out and turns around and has his face all squinted up and said, Man, that's salty. And she said, Well, what did you expect? What the world should expect from Christians is that we are different. It's so cool to talk to so many of you because God is doing things in your life. You're wanting to serve. You're like, man, when is the next mission trip, Jeff? Schedule it so I can come, you dirty dog. You only gave us two months notice on this last one. Jeff, I'm praying for my friends. How can I help out around church? And guess what? What you often come into contact with is that when Jesus changes your nature from being an agent of drama, an agent of the world has to revolve around me, are we okay? We all right? In other words, if I'm not happy, nobody's happy in my house, in my job, my environment. When Jesus changes you from an agent of decay to an agent of preservation, you will notice that you'll get some kickback from people. Now, they don't say it like this, but they're kind of, if we're reading it through Jesus' words, they're saying, why are you so salty? Why are you so different? Why can't you just be like most people? They just go to church on a Sunday morning. They just throw a little money in the offering plate, and then they go home and do the same thing that all of the rest of us does. But why do you have to be so different? Because when I see your difference, it makes me feel bad. And that's why they'll want to get you to come do the same things that they're doing. Because if you can slip and you can fall and you can lose your saltiness, then it makes them feel better about their life. You see, Jesus is saying here that God's plan for the salvation of the world is by one by one God coming through people, transforming them so that they bring the gospel to their friends. Their friends are transformed. The city is transformed. The region is transformed. And the world is transformed. What Jesus is not saying here is that he's not giving these principles that Christians always have to press down upon their neighbors. We should stand up for what's right. But I just want to ask all of us who've been saved the question, do people know us more for our political beliefs or do they know us more for people who are willing to lay down our life for our neighbor? That's a convicting question, whether you are moderate, whether you are progressive, whether you are conservative. May God help us to stand up for what is right, but not to do it in such a way that it drives people away. Are we all all on the same page there? All right. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write down Genesis chapter 6. This is right before God sent the flood. And God said that the, the state of man's heart was evil continually. Now think about this. The world was so bad that the people who were there except for one family, all they thought about was evil. And the Bible says, here's the biblical reason why God sent the flood. It says, because the earth was filled with violence. It was an absolutely horrific place to live. It had decayed to the point to where God says the only way to salvage this is to destroy it, to take my man and his family and start all over again. We see a similar story in Genesis chapter 18. Sodom and Gomorrah, if you've, many of you have seen, I guess it was last winter, the Bible mini-series. 
It was pretty neat. Now, I, I didn't know, maybe I missed that in the Old Testament, but I didn't know that God sent ninja angels with swords, right? Like in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, these guys, like they, they got these double swords and they're killing. I'm like, well, there's nobody left there for God to send the fight, the brimstone down on. Maybe I missed that. If you're new to church, the Bible doesn't say that God sent ninja angels, all right? But it showed it in the show. But God says that this, this society, this culture is beyond repair. And so I'm going to wipe it and start from the bottom. If you're taking notes, 1 Kings chapter 18, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 18. It was a time, it was at a low time in the nation of Israel where almost everyone was worshiping the Baals. Now check this out. We're, we're going we're gonna to get in and get out. Baal worship involved group immorality. Got it? Group immorality, and it also involved human sacrifice. Check this out. The Bible says in 1 Kings 19.18, this is God saying, I have reserved 7,000 people throughout the whole nation who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The whole nation. Hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, it was so bad that when God sent a, a, a king named Josiah... They went into the temple, right? Now imagine this, imagine this. All the stuff hits the fan. Society goes down. It's like walking dead minus the zombies. Everything just, I mean, implodes. And we begin to just as a society rip each other to shreds. And maybe 30, 40 years later, somebody comes back to this place and they begin to look around and all the debris and all of the trash. And they say, what is this? And they find what we know to be a Bible. That's what happened in the time of Josiah. But God says, you know what? Even in those times, even in the times where it seems like no one is serving Jesus, when there is no salt, when it's all gone away, that I've reserved 7,000 people who have not bowed to the enemy. And let me just say that if you feel alone in your Christian walk, if you say, Jesus, I'm, I'm trying to be the light to my friends and my family, I'm trying to be salt. I'm trying to be to, to be different. Not to think that I'm better, but to let you live through me. Guess what? If you pray, and this has happened to me before in my life, to where sometimes you may feel alone. And you pray and you say, Oh God, would you send someone to encourage me? If you go through a time to where people are at your throat and they are discouraging you, and it seems like you're David... And David says in the Psalms, he says, these same people that I went to worship together, now they're at, they're trying to take me down. And he says that my couch is soaked from my morning. If you are going through times like that, I encourage you, I beg you to get down on your knees and pray to the one God of the universe. God, would you send someone to encourage me? And he will. He will send somebody. This is, this is a family. Can we have an amen for that? This is a family, and I know sometimes we got a lot of people here. It's a big room, okay? Sometimes people that I know, they say, Well, Jeff, I even came to church. You know, it may, like lightning may strike the steeple and go all the way down and run up to the floor and zap me from the bottom. And, and I, I'm just kind of nervous around big groups. Guess what? There's a, and I don't know everybody's hearts, but I'll tell you this. I can name you person after person after person in Rocky Mount Baptist Church that for the glory of God, they're ready to reach people for Jesus. They will be an encouragement to you. And once again, what's the context? The context in the Bible means that when we read a verse, we read what becomes for it, what comes before it, and what comes after it. Because we don't want to be like the guy who just opened up his Bible and he said, well, I'm just going to pick a verse. And the verse was Judas went out and hung himself. 
He said, well, that's not very encouraging. And he flipped the Bible again. And then he found another verse. And it says, whatever thou doest, or go thou and do likewise. And then he said, that can't be it. And then he found another verse that says, whatever thou doest, doest it quickly. You see, if you just pick and choose in the Bible, I know some of y'all have been in church, you're like, Jeff, that's the millionth time I've heard that. But you still laughed. That's why we have to take it in context. So when we look at the Bible in context, it's in the verse that comes before it in verse 10, 11, and 12 is persecution. Jesus is saying when the world tries to press you into its mold, when people try, get this, when people try to have you back down and water down your message of Jesus, there's going to be the temptation for you to lose your saltiness. This is in your outline, that Christians who lose their Christ-likeness have nothing to offer the world. Say, Jeff, what does it mean to lose the saltiness? Because we know that salt can't lose the saltiness. What is Jesus getting at? Well, Jesus is the one who created everything that is. Jesus created the minerals that make up salt and so forth. Jesus understands science. But in that day, what they would do is they would go to the Dead Sea and they would scoop out mineral deposits, a lot of you could get this pile of what looked like salt, and there was some salt in it, but if it was left out in the rain, the rain would wash the salt away, and it would be left with salty-like stuff, but it wasn't really salt. And the only use for it was just to throw it out on the, on the roads because they didn't have Roundup. And Jesus is saying that if we become mixed with impurities, we become... Now, check this out. This is a cool note right here. This is one, one way that we can look at the original language of the New Testament, and it's really awesome. You know what it means when it says that the, the, the salt has lost its taste, it's no good for anything? The word here um, for losing its savor or its saltiness is where we get our word moron from. You're like, what? Follow me here. Jesus is saying that if the salt loses its saltiness, it becomes a moron. Now, moron, I looked this up. You say, well, Jeff, if you didn't know what that was and you had to look it up, maybe you are one. But it is origin, early 20th century, as a medical term denoting an adult with a mental age of about 8 through 12. And it comes from the Greek moron, which literally means foolish. Jesus is saying this. That if we take the bait of the world, that if we limit and we water down our Christ-likeness, then we become morons. We become foolish. The same word is used in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 when Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, is saying that the world, and by the way, when we use that term, it means the world outside of Christ, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, the Bible says, Has God not made foolish or moronic the wisdom of the world? Jesus is getting at the point to saying, My disciples, the ones who I have died for, if you lose your saltiness, how can you be resalted? How can I? Here's the thing. What other truth is there than Jesus? Jesus is saying, look, if you throw me off and you put me to the back burner to be socially acceptable so that people will not look at you and say, you're a Jesus freak, what other truth is there? There's no life outside of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And something that I pray God impresses upon our hearts is like Peter. When he says, "Where? who else has the words of life? 
Sometimes when we may be disappointed with other Christians, when we, we may be disappointed with our church, or with someone in our family who loves Jesus, and we say they should have been there, they should have done this. Listen, there's nowhere else to go in those times that you feel betrayed. Come to Jesus. Like the old song, take it to the Lord in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. He's the one who will never leave and never forsake, no matter what. No matter in persecution or no matter if we're being tempted to water down our message for Jesus Christ. Now the world's logic is this. What's in it for me? Like the country song, right? What's in it for me, I have to ask? What's in it for me? If you're thinking of joining this church based upon the benefits for you and your family, please don't join. Like Pastor Jeff, he's at it again. Stop telling him, right? Because we've created this monster called me-centered Christianity. To our church, it's all about for us to hear a good sermon to get us through the week, right? Now, hopefully it's not a sermon that makes you want to end the week, right? We, we want it to be something that's encouraging. But if it's something that we come and we say, I want something to encourage me musically, teaching-wise, for my children, for my youth, for me to have a good Sunday school class that understands me, it's all about who? It's all about me. And the beauty of the gospel is that it turns the world's logic on top of its head and says that the way that you truly find joy is you give of yourself. Self-sacrifice as opposed to self-advancement. The world says it's only wise, it's only smart, it's only street smart if you come out on the winning side. But Jesus says, why don't you join up with the ones that the world says are the losers and in the end you win. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If you don't know that text, I'd encourage you to write it down. Check it out later. Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, let him first, what, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And we, by and large, as Americans, we have bitten on the bait of self-advancement brings happiness, and it simply doesn't. And people say, well, Jesus has called me to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But, but if I can just, Jeff, if I can just take some jiu-jitsu classes between now and Black Friday and snag that $50 MacBook Pro before that next person, even if I have to neck chop them, that will bring me happy. No, it won't. And by the way, if you go out on Black Friday, may God be with you. And your guardian angels and the power of the Holy Spirit be manifest in your life. But I find myself so often slipping into this being distracted by stuff. You know what happens? The stuff that you get sometimes you can't afford. And then when you're trying to pay off the stuff that you can't afford, you're stressed out. Not going to ask for an amen. Thank you. And then the stuff that you have, it stretches you out just trying to use it and keep it up until the next big thing comes out. What Jesus is saying here about the salt losing its saltiness, he's saying don't lose your identity as being followers of Jesus Christ. And let me just say a word in regards to Rocky Mount Baptist Church. God has done so many things for us. By the way, some of y'all are wondering, Jeff, is a sound system going to be installed in the, in the millennium that comes or is it going to be installed sometimes within the next 15 years? Tomorrow, baby. Tomorrow it's going down. All right? So it begins. They're going to give a couple of weeks for it. And it may be a learning curve. 
because it's a no, whole new thing. But if you've not been with us, we just, we've got some old equipment and it ended up burning up not too long ago anyway. Church didn't burn down. That's good. And uh, we, we caught it. So we just had to get some stuff and it's expensive and, it, but we're trying to be good stewards. But yet God provided from something that none of us have ever seen. You can go listen to a message a few weeks ago about it, but it's just awesome how God has provided. But let me just say a word. So many of you are faithful in giving so that we can go to places like Romania and hopefully we can, we can connect with an unreached people group. Just FYI, you're not supposed to do this. They say, don't ever let people know until the plan's fully formed. I'm like, no plan is fully formed. I'm talking to some guys with the SBCV, the group that we work with, this network of churches, about the possibility of us working with some churches that are already on the mission field and possibly connecting with an unreached people group, a group that's never heard Jesus of Jesus. And hold on, Jeff, we're not a mega church, right? But I thought that the, the Bible says that nothing is impossible with God. And the question for us is Rocky Mount Baptist Church, how big do we really believe God is? If we believe that we have to just circle the wagons, that will kill a church. It'll kill it. But if we plug up, we plug in with Matthew chapter 25, with people that are hurting, people that are incarcerated, people that have uh, not enough food, people that are in the hospital, people that are ill. Jesus says, and as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. They said, well, Jesus, Jesus, we, as far as I know, you've not been locked up yet. We've never seen you naked or, or hungry or, or thirsty to the point of, of death. We, we've never seen you in a hospital. They didn't have a hospital. So we've never seen you physically ill to this point. When did we ever do it to you? And he says, then I'll say to them, in as much as you've done it unto the least of these. Seasoned church people, that means people who don't have money to give. You've done it. You've done it unto me. And I just want to put this forward. As we walk forward in the years to come serving together, I believe the more that we can sharpen our focus to reach people and love people and encourage people who don't have anything to give us in return, it is at that point that Jesus is glorified. We are not about just filling up a room so we can get together at these conventions and say, Hey, brother, Pastor Jeffrey Robinson, right, Reverend so-and-so, how many did you have today? And we just say, you know what? We want to serve people. And we want to serve those people that Jesus identified himself with most. Finally, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, if you've read your Bibles, you know that Jerusalem was the highest point in that region. So when you read some of the Psalms and it speaks about ascending to the Lord, it, it literally means that, that the people were walking up towards Jerusalem. It means that they understood Jerusalem to be the city on a hill that could not be hidden. And Jesus is saying that you are the city on the hill. Let me give you several texts about light in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. The Bible says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The Bible says, Do all things... Now, y'all are going to have to fix Thanksgiving dinner, so, so listen to this. And some of y'all are going to have to fix Thanksgiving dinner while watching people watch football. So listen. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now time out. Who is Jesus speaking to? Bible tells us there in in verse number one of Ch- of Matthew five, seeing the crowds, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. These were his disciples, the the core, but also the ones that later left. Now imagine the disciples sitting there saying, "Did he just say that? He said it. That we are the light of of the. Does Jesus did he?" Jesus knows us. It's like, yeah, you've got Matthew who was a tax cheater. I mean, this guy's like the white collar crime division. And then you've got Peter and they're like, he needs anger management classes. Amen. Amen. Right? I mean, he's always getting mad at people going off. Then you've got the, the, the disciples gathered around like a middle school team saying, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? To where one of their moms comes. Now, you, you know. You know they had to hang their head in shame because she had overheard it and she was one of those moms that says, well, my son's going to be first or nobody's going to be first. And then she comes and she, I mean, she busted up and Jesus has to dress the mom of grown men. I mean, these guys were absolutely goofballs to the point that when it came down to where the rubber meets the road, they all ran away and left Jesus. Can you imagine them with those insecurities that led them to forsake Christ and their baggage from the past saying did Jesus say that we are the light of the world we don't have education like the rest of these scribes and Pharisees how, how can we be the light of the world well you can't but Jesus can the power of a surrendered life to Jesus Christ is unmatched by any level of education Pastor Johnny Hunt said, I'd rather be ignorance on fire than intellect on ice. Can I get a witness? Not ignorant of what is, but knowledgeable of the one true fact that I've been changed by Jesus Christ. You are the light of the world. Note here that Jesus says it almost begins to be absurd. In verse 15, he gives this example, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all that are in the house. Now, they didn't have candles in that time. They didn't have, obviously, electricity. But what they had, it was kind of like a small bowl and they would fill it with oil and they would place a wick in it. It was very simple. You had to be very safe because obviously that wouldn't work in the United States because we have to put signs on on car batteries that says, do not drink the acid inside, right? It would have never worked. People would have spilled it and burned down the whole world, right? But it was something very small, and, and when, when, the, when the sun would go down, they, they would light the lamp, they would light the wick, and the oil in the New Testament, this is a beautiful picture, pictures the Holy Spirit. It represents the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, as the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you will be a light that you could never be on your own. I know we're in the South, and this comes up, Time and time again to where people say, Jeff, I would get saved, but I just don't think that I can live the Christian life. That's the point. We all on the same page? That's the point. 
You can't be a light. You can't be salt. You can't be good enough or smart enough. But what you must do is come to the point of brokenness and humility before God. And you bring all of the garbage, all of the impurities, all of the darkness. And you lay it at his feet and you repent and say, Jesus, please change me. I'm giving it all to you. And the beautiful message of the gospel is that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Jesus' time, there was a group that met in Qumran. And Qumran is where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Isn't that interesting? It was from this group. And this group, they called themselves the Sons of Light. But guess what they did? They all gathered as monks and they were separate from society. Jesus is saying that it doesn't make sense for Christians to gather together with other Christians all the time and say, well, let's just put this bushel, this basket of protection around us because if we let people who are, who are not like us around, they may, they may, we have to protect our light. What? What we should do is go find the most messed up people, the people that are farthest from the Lord and bring the light to them because should light be afraid of darkness? No! Darkness is simply the absence of light. So Jesus says that it doesn't make sense for believers to simply cloister together. But to drive back the darkness through the grace and the power of God is what will change society. Please, please, please don't underestimate the power of God and your life with those people that you know. Let me give you an example. 1904, Wales, England, British Isles. There's something called the Welsh Revival. And historians tell us that around the turn of the century, it was an absolutely wicked place. Society was disintegrating. The nation had drifted far from God. Church attendance had plummeted. I mean, like, very, very few people, if any, even attended church. There was sin everywhere. Family breakups. The bars were full, or the pubs, the taverns, as the British would call it. And then a group got together, and they began to pray that God would touch their land. In 1904, it was historians, secular and Christian, recognized the Welsh revival as one of the changing points in that nation. People began to be saved. Churches were so crowded that they had to have multiple services throughout the day even until midnight, from 10 in the morning until 12 at midnight to fit everyone into the churches. There's a leader named Evan Roberts, but one historian says that Evan Roberts was the human instrument, but there wasn't even that much preaching. People would come, they would confess sins. There was singing, testimony, and prayer as the three features of this revival. They said that they didn't even need a choir because everybody sang. There was no collection, There was no advertising. It says that infidels were converted, drunkards, thieves, gamblers saved, and thousands reclaimed. Confessions of awful sins were heard on every side. This is from the missionary Jonathan Goforth. Old debts were paid. The theater had to leave for want of patronage. And this is what I think is awesome. The coal mines in those days, the mules no longer knew how to respond to the commands because God had cleaned up the hearts and cleaned up the vocabulary. 20,000 people in five weeks joined the churches and were saved to the glory of Jesus Christ. When I read that, I said, you know what, it kind of reminds me in a way of, of Alexander the Great. Remember his young man? 
He wept because there were no other worlds to conquer. He had come to the end of the known world, India. And he wept without hope because there were no more worlds for him to conquer. And I said, you know what? In the same way that Alexander wept out of selfish self-advancement because he didn't have any more to get, may it be that those of us who have been changed by Jesus Christ, may we weep and may we be broken for the lives and the nations and individuals and the families that have not yet bowed in submission to King Jesus. And that's, that's, that's the invitation. The question, has your saltiness become infiltrated by things that are impure that you need to confess to Jesus today? And has, has, there been, has there been the light that is placed under a bushel out of fear, out of not wanting to get outside the comfort zone, out of, out of a sense of security? Have we limited what God is saying, I can do more than you can imagine?